So Acts 19, starting at verse 8. Verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must, must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erasmus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the house in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Some of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. 
He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If, then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. As Natalie said, what we've just read is uh, a whole stack of extraordinary events that occur in the town of Ephesus. And what we're going to concentrate on is how these little vignettes or snapshots of things that went down in Ephesus amount to showing us that despite the massive forces at work, whatever they are, if they're supernatural and spiritual, if it's economic and political, if it's culture, despite how huge those forces are, as verse 20 says, in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. We are reminded from this chapter that God, through Jesus, dominates. He is the most powerful. Yes, there are real forces, real pressures, and they plague us and we feel them. But if it comes to those pressures trying to keep people from the word of God, if the word of God comes to them, God is powerful and he releases because Jesus is on the throne. That's the whole story of Acts. So that's what we're going to look at, the impressive power of Jesus, and then ask, well, do we believe it? Because sometimes you can just have these statements that kind of sit abstract with you. You know, Jesus is the most victorious, but then you go about doing normal life, and sometimes you can do normal life following patterns that are different to this statement that you hold. So we'll press into how do we actually believe that Jesus has the most power and we have access to it. We have access to it. So we'll look at that. And if we're tracking all right now, if we've got time, there may be some questions or reflections that come out of this passage that we can have a look at as well. If you, th if you think that would be helpful for everyone, we'll go there. Okay, so let me pray and we'll launch in. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great history of the New Testament church that has not been stopped. And please, in our day and age, may we be reminded how powerful you are and that your word is amazing. If we were to use it regularly and share it with people, it would disrupt and change all the landscape, people's lives, communities, and culture. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let me um, take you to Ephesus, because 
All this is happening in Ephesus, and it's part of Paul's third missionary journey. So do you, do you sometimes, well, I do, do you, like me, get a little bit jumbled as where we're, where we're at in Acts and where we're traveling and which missionary journey it is? So let's just backtrack. Despite the slide saying Paul's secondary missionary journey, what I've marked out on the map is his first journey, okay? Because all of the missionary journeys have Paul and his crew being launched from Antioch. You can see Antioch just north of Jerusalem. And from Antioch, they go on three major missionary journeys that are told to us in Acts. The first is into the region of Galatia, and that's where he plants some churches, and then he comes back to Jerusalem. So it's just a a little kind of loop that he does for his first foray out of Judea. Then the secondary, second missionary journey, Paul launches from Antioch. Again, he travels back through those Galatian churches and maybe he was going to Ephesus because Ephesus, as we'll see, is a massive town in the region. But he kind of gets called by the Lord to go north and he jumps across to Macedonia, which is northern Greece. So that whole little area is Greece. And then he goes down to southern Greece into Athens, we looked at that last week, into Corinth. And then on his way back, he sails to Ephesus, just stops there briefly. You read about that in Acts 18, and then heads back to Jerusalem. And then for a third time, launches out from Antioch, and this is where we're at right now. He launches out from Antioch, goes back to the churches he's planted in Galatia, um, and then arrives at Ephesus. That's where we are at, at Acts 19, Paul's third missionary journey. And he spends, you may remember in verse 9, it said for about two years, two, two and a half years, we work out that he stayed in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a full-on town. Massive things going on there. It was the epicenter of that Asian region. It was where all the politics happened for that part of the continent it was where all the religion was centered on all the cult religion of artemis was centered there Uh, it was highly cultural the arts uh, games sports was all centered there for that region one person has said had described ephesus is the louvre of culture ephesus is the asylum for us, like you know, Geneva, Sweden, Switzerland, those areas which are big on rights and asylum, Ephesus was that town for the region. It is the mecca of religion, so people would go there from everywhere. It is where politics for that area was based. It's the DC or the White House of that area. It's the Wall Street of that area, and it's the Diagon Alley. That's a Harry Potter reference where you would go and get your magical needs. And we kind of picked that up a bit in this passage. Magic was pervasive through Ephesus. Um, On a modern day map, that area that we just looked at is Turkey. So if we use Google, you zoom in there and you can type in um, the Temple of Artemis which is what our passage is dealing with at a point. And you can zoom in and we get what's left of the Temple of Artemis. It's part of the seven classic wonders of the world. 
Now, does anyone know what classic wonder of the world in its entirety is still standing? I'm going to sound really smart, but I actually got this off Wikipedia. Not the Colosseum, but that's what I would have said as well. Neither. Because um, apparently that's a modern or like a, a medieval, middle age, ages wonder of the world. So they've got seven for different periods. So apparently for the classic, cool period, the Pyramid of Giza. Who's seen that? Who's been there? Okay, Adam. In its entirety, that is the only one that is standing. Insofar as this wonder of the classic world, the Temple of Artemis, there's just a pillar and a half. But if some people have done some reconstruction based on a pillar, <laughs> and they've rebuilt that. This is the temple of Artemis, which was central to the region. And Artemis was the goddess of fertility, astrology. Did you pick up that line um, in verse 35 when the city clerk says, Oh, come on, we know that the great Artemis and her image which fell from heaven... So she's the goddess of astrology, uh, fertility, and is also the goddess of magic. So magic was pervasive in the town of Ephesus. It was a very, very potent and active spiritual hub. You know when you look up a town on Wikipedia and it will tell you the stats on it and it talks about gross domestic product and major services that that town trade in? Well... Ephesus, the product that they kept pushing out on the conveyor belt that made it a lot of money was idols. Lots of idols and tools that are associated with running this temple and having the benefits of Artemis flow down to you. And the major service that they traded in was sorcery, magic, the dark arts. It was a town where people would come from all over the world in order to get access to the magicians and the seasoned masters of these dark arts to be able to be involved in black magic. That is the town of Ephesus. And along with that came great fear. People were living in fear and that's why they engaged in magic and they spent all their money, very expensive to live there, spending all your money, opening your wallet to buy these products from the temple to procure the benefits to get access to the right magicians who have the right formula and names to curse and counter-curse. It was a very fearful place. And this is where Paul is. And so no wonder there's a, a bit of clash that goes on in this account. But despite the massive power, the very potent and deep spiritual oppression and opposition, we see that very ordinarily... The word of God goes out and lots of people repent, are converted and repent and become followers of the Lord. For two and a half years, Paul preaches and he gains a whole stack of disciples. But along the way, there does seem to be these moments where God augments the word. So the word is still being preached augments and validates and shows that Jesus is victorious in these extraordinary and remarkable ways. They show to us 
and to that, in, that community, the power of the Lord. So let's just go through those snapshots and pause to make a couple of um, comments on it, just so we see the power of it. We've got four of them that come up. And the first one is in verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs, there we go, and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Imagine if someone actually passed on a dirty handkerchief to you and said, I don't know, rub that somewhere and you'll be healed. But that's what happened. Dirty handkerchiefs are passed around, used aprons, not because they are magical in and of themselves, but God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. God causes in order to validate the word that Paul has been preaching. These ordinary household items, material items to transmit power to people so that people in a different area from Paul, located differently in the city, end up being healed, their illnesses are cured, and evil spirits leave them. Now that is extraordinary, isn't it? And I take it that Luke, who writes Acts, is writing this because it's not normal. This, this is bizarre, and, but amazing. And so he records it. Because you read Acts, and once or twice you see some interesting things like this over a period of, uh, what are we? We're nearly, tw- I'm just doing the date, so about 25 years worth of ministry has already taken place when we get to the third missionary journey. And there's only a few times that Luke stops to tell us about these things. It's extraordinary. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul and evil spirits were left. These, these things that had bound people away from Jesus are broken, augmenting the word of the Lord. The next little snapshot that we get is a, a dark story, but it's also kind of comedic at the same time. Verse 13, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. It shows you just how steeped in the dark arts this city is that Jews, and I take it when they say Jews, they're kind of talking about religious Jews, but they're, they're mixed up in this evil spirit working. And they go around um, trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who are demon-possessed. Now, at one level, you can understand Jews who believed in the eternal God wanting to cast out demons, but they've, they're doing it in a way that they've just been caught up in this magical world and how that works. Because they pull out what seems to be a formulaic saying and try to cast out this demon. So they would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Real ownership in that, hey. <laughs> I command in the name of that Jesus, the distance that Paul preaches, you to come out. From what we learn about Ephesus and the way black magic worked in that environment is they put a lot of weight in powers that were attributed to people who had died. So one of the ways that you could master or control powers was to invoke the name of dead people. And so you can understand that 
if that was their business, they're walking around, they're, they're using powerful names that they had, and they've heard of this Jesus who died, and Paul is doing amazing things using that name. If you were trading in magic and you wanted people to come to you and you're seeing power go to other people, you'd probably try to get that formulaic statement, that spell, into your toolbox, placing a lot of weight in the actual name and the formula that they do. After the 8.30 service, I spoke to Noreen Stevens. We all know Noreen Stevens. She comes, yeah, Noreen, no? Andrew Stevens' wife. She comes from Borneo, and she said to me that she grew up in a household where her father was the witch doctor. He was the grand magician of their area, and they were involved in headhunting. So they, they would kill people to get their skulls based on a belief that the skulls would, in, in ha- would house the soul, and then if you own the skull, and therefore the soul, you can control that power to manipulate. And she grew up in a world where there were curses and counter curses and she said it was very scary walking out the door. You had to get everything aligned in the spiritual world just to do daily life. That's how magic works. It's people who are at one level very fearful and they're trying to control their destiny. Here, what's funny about this story is Seven sons of Sceva, so these exorcists are actually seven, a group of seven running this business, their work. They were going around doing this, claiming some credentials of being a Jewish chief priest. But then one day, verse 15, the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? I mean, that's kind of funny at one level. Um, Even God... In, in his ultimate control of everything, uh, somehow uses a, you know, evil powers to dismiss the attempts of these people to control Jesus' power to their own ends. You follow? He, he, the, the demon itself says... In the face of the true power of Jesus, you have no power. I don't know you. If, if a legitimate Christian like Paul came up and said in the name of Jesus, then we've got story after story of what would happen. But here, just used as a magic formula, well, Jesus, Jesus controls everything ultimately and he will not let his name be tapped for magical power. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I mean, that's funny too. Not that he got beaten up, but, you know, to prove that Jesus' power cannot be tapped to some evil end, the evil spirit jumps on these Jewish exorcists and beats them to a pulp. Now, there's a couple of humorous contrasts going on here. We've just seen, under God, a dirty hanky have immense power to cast out evil spirits, but then these seasoned practitioners of the dark arts who have experience in this realm and do have power and control when it comes to 
trying to use Jesus' name, they're drained of all their power. The evil spirit actually overpowers them. You know, that's funny in terms of the contrast. And there's another little piece of irony that comes up as well, that when we read through the New Testament and Jesus' work and then the apostles, when we watch them cast out demons, often when you meet in the New Testament someone who is demon-possessed, they are naked. They're running around crazy, they're naked, they're bleeding, they've got sores over their body. You know, and they're not just crazy in the mind, possessed in the mind, they're actually got all these physical manifestations that they're being possessed. Here, who's the one that runs out of the house suddenly naked and bleeding? It's those seven false uh, apostles, those seven magicians. So in a sense, the irony is this evil spirit has excised the exorcists. He's flipped them around, drained them of their power. Okay, so we see that God's word is so powerful in the face of even even spiritual demons and spirits who are immensely powerful ordinarily. They are drained of their power in the face of the Lord Jesus. This is what's happening in Ephesus. Uh, Next, we see that because of this, everyone... Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, verse 17, were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. People who had practiced sorcery, kind of normal everyday living in a town like Ephesus, come out en masse and burn their scrolls, their magical scrolls. And this is a big deal because in the magical world, all the power to manipulate is located in the words. If you can get the right words and formulas down, then you have power. So to just let that go in a world of vulnerability and fate and you don't know what's going to happen the next day and you've been banking on this for your security, this is an amazing outcome of the word of the Lord coming to Ephesus that a whole community, not everyone, but like a substantial community within Ephesus, bring their scrolls together, renounce their sorcery. Uh, They're renouncing because they no longer put their trust in it. Uh, There's a higher, more powerful name that they've come to. And the sum total of all that they burn is 50,000 drachmas. Now, Darren Box worked it out for me at 830 he said that if you go by day, because the footnote says here, drachma is a day's wage. And then he went in his head and came out with $10 million. So it's, equivalent, you know, it's a big deal. Okay? This is a big deal. Next snapshot that we see. So three little snapshots of the power of God coming and thwarting any attempts to oppose the proclamation of the word. This final one is this riot that happens in Ephesus. As we read along in Acts 19, we hear that Paul in verse 21 is about to go to Jerusalem, but then Luke, who's writing this, it's like he wants to really impress on us just just how intense and troublesome this town Ephesus was, because he comes back and goes, oh, well, about the time, about that time, there also arose a great disturbance about the way. And we read that. The local economy attached to the religious cult 
and their magical world have noticed a severe drop in their profits. People becoming Christians, no longer needing the idols and the tools and the paraphernalia from the shrine of Artemis. And so he calls together all the workers in verse 25 and related trades and says, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see how, see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. <laughs> One fell swoop, the whole entire system. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But um, we are in danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so they start becoming furious. And they shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Then soon the whole city is in uproar. You end up with this scenario where the whole city is in uproar and most people are psychotic. Did you pick up that detail where it says most of the people, verse 32, most of the people did not even know why they were there. They're kind of possessed. They've turned up, they're possessed, they're psychotic, shouting their stuff, ready to write, having, having no real deep idea of what they are even doing. And then the tail end of the story is that despite all that, well, it looks high pressure, um, there's no, no invoking of the Lord's name here, but just God's providence appears where a, a city clerk hops up and goes, whoa, 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 guys, you know, let me remind you of the law. You know, we're in danger of writing here. Um, let's just calm down. And the word of the Lord continues on through that region. These four little snapshots show us that there is one real power in life. Whatever our reality, there are real circumstances that are immensely powerful and they are threatening and it is scary. It's a dangerous world to wake up in the morning to. There's economic power. You know, how will I survive financially? There's political power. How will we actually even exist in a community that has this opposing political power there is supernatural spiritual power that is weaving its way through things and pressing in and yet despite all this what's cutting through all the pressure is just the ordinary preaching of the word and prayer which you see through acts and at times Sometimes when it seems like the, the mounting opposition is escalating and escalating to a boiling point where you might go, really, is God still in charge? He shows that he is absolutely in charge and crushes the opposition. We see that the Lord is most powerful and nothing can thwart his ongoing program for the world. 
And we also see, as I said, that despite the opposition, as it escalates, it seems like we do see more and more of the Lord. That, that's my observation. It seems to me, as you watch all the extraordinary things that happen, it's at times when there is a huge uprising of alternative power. And then the Lord just simply cuts it down. So we learn that no matter what we might fear, all the pressures we have, no matter what they escalate to, the Lord is powerful. We just keep doing the ordinary things of preaching the word and praying, praying. We, we know without a doubt behind all these stories is prayer because the start of Acts shows that the apostles, when they first got persecuted in Acts chapter 4, they come out of the Sanhedrin and they go, Lord, you are ruler over all kings and nations. Um, may you, by your power, cause us to keep boldly preaching the word. Ephesus is unique in that you do see all these uh, intense forces at work. And have a look at your outline. I've, it, it's interesting when you read more widely in the New Testament, Paul's own reflection of his time in Ephesus. In your outline, I've just put a number of different times when he is talking about his experience here in Acts 19, those two and a half come three years that he was in Ephesus. He writes the book of Corinthians from Ephesus, and you see that he is very candid about just how difficult life and ministry was in Ephesus. God seems to have put us apostles on display at the end of a procession, like those condemned to die in an arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We see that one of the ways God shows his power is in the context of weakness. It's as things look dire and it's beyond our human capacity, God shows his power. 1 Corinthians 15, he says halfway through, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hearts, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Um, he probably wasn't actually fighting literal beasts. Most likely that's metaphoric for just the spiritual dynamic that was going on in Ephesus. Um, Satan and his demons throughout the New Testament, particularly by Paul and Peter, are described as beasts that want to rip and tear people apart. Second Corinthians, again, the great pressure that they experienced in the province of Asia. That's where Ephesus is. He's been flogged and severely tested time and time again. So all this is going on parallel to these extraordinary miracles. In Romans 16, he talks about Priscilla and Aquila. We read in Acts that they stayed behind in Ephesus and he mentions that they risked their lives for Paul. Such is the pressure there. If you were to go into the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, we see out of all his letters, he seems to be the most uh, explicit about the spiritual world and the dark forces that are opposing the Lord. So in chapter 1, he speaks of the fact that we in Christ are seated in the heavenly realms far above or power and dominion. And he speaks in chapter 2 that you know, people who are not Christians are 
caught under the ruler of the air. And then in chapter 6, you know, that great passage where it talks about putting on the armour of the Lord, he sets that up by saying, because our struggle ultimately is not against flesh and blood. It's not primarily politics or the economy or culture or our social group, even though that's very real. Behind that is a very big spiritual warfare that is going on. And yet, in Ephesians 6, the same idea, the way you stand firm is to remember the gospel, speak the gospel, and pray. End of chapter 6, pray in all occasions, presenting your requests to God. And Paul again talks to his Ephesians church and says, and pray for me that I might speak boldly. Come over to Acts 20, verse 17. This is just before Paul leaves Ephesus and he calls together the elders of the church and he says, You know that I've been with you uh, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So again, just recognising how tough this place is. So it's a good picture that we get that no matter how things escalate, the Lord will always turn up, sometimes in extraordinary ways, parallel to the preaching of his word and the prayer of his saints, and do amazing things that stop the ability of other forces, be they human spiritual, political, cultural, of actually thwarting the gospel. Now, shouldn't we take great hope as we look in Australia at the moment? You know, you may have been thinking heaps about all the uh, fallout from the marriage debate where it then went on to talking about, well, what are religious freedoms? Who can say what? Are you allowed to express your Christian faith openly? You know, we're, we're in a situation where it feels like culturally and now even politically there is great oppression coming down. Well, lots of people have been praying about that. Have you been praying about that? Yeah? Yeah? Well, something extraordinary has happened in the last two weeks. right? Regardless of your allegiances with politics, regardless of what you think of ScoMo, our new Prime Minister, what we have is a Prime Minister who is a Christian who probably recognises there's a good, a very high percentage that he won't get in come May next year, just the way the polls are going, and he is going to fast-track this report, this inquiry, that uh, the Turnbull government got going to look into religious freedoms and faith in Australia. What would that look like? What legislation needs to be in place? He's going to fast-track that from tomorrow. You know, now, to me, that seems like a great answer to prayer. Again, it's just like here, you just don't know what God's going to do. That might be the answer. There might be more to that story. But at the moment, that's, that's pretty extraordinary given where we were heading. Um, because Malcolm Turnbull, he, he gets this inquiry going. The results came back. Philip Ruddock and his crew gave the recommendations and he just sat on it. No one knows what the recommendations are. It's all being sat on 
Well, now it's going to come out and keep praying. Keep praying because God is powerful. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. The word of the Lord won't be thwarted. Uh, let me finish on this, right? Um, why, why is the Lord so powerful and why is it that his word is the way that we access and can participate in sharing his power across the world? It's because any force that exists out there is still subsumed under God. No matter what their power, they are still ultimately under God. Why? Because the Bible tells us that when we sinned against God, it was God who handed us under the power of other things as a consequence, as a punishment, for the wages of sin is death. And in an interesting passage, the Bible tells us that Satan, the devil, leverages the fact that we have been pushed under death and are now living a life fearful of death. So Hebrews chapter 2 says that since the children have flesh and blood, that's us being vulnerable, human, Uh, ready and destined to die, so that by his death, Jesus, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Because we have been put under the curse of death, and that is our destiny, we live all of our life with death looming. We're worried that it might happen tomorrow or down the track, Everything about life is eating away at us and trying to strip us down. So we feel very vulnerable and insecure. That's how we live as humans. And Satan leverages that because he is a liar from the beginning. And he comes in and all of his tactics are, if you put your efforts this way, you will find security. If you put your efforts this way, away from Jesus and God, then you'll find hope. It was the lie from the beginning. God really kind of wants to kill you. He doesn't really want you to have a good life. Come and put your trust in this solution that I've got. And Satan does that throughout history, throughout society. That is why you've got people in some cultures deeply distressed and in fear about the spiritual world. They need assurance. They need security and control, so they engage in magic. Uh, We might do that here. Uh, We've got all sorts of ways that we are magical. We have these formulas. If I do this, if I line that up, pull that lever, out will come this kind of destiny. That's how I can control my destiny. Well, the reason why Jesus is so powerful and the word of the gospel is so powerful is because at the cross, Jesus removes the very reason why we were placed under death in the first place so jesus's power is not primarily because he grabbed the devil by the horns and went bang bang and cracked his neck and it's over it's because he absorbed the debt that we had before god so that we are effectively taken out of death and into life the fear of death that satan leverages every moment has been broken 
That is why the power of the Lord is ultimate. And when we share the gospel with people, we are freeing them from Satan and the fear of death. So why don't you, this week, do what I've been doing recently? This is just a suggestion. Just to test yourself about how daily you do believe that Jesus is most powerful. By maybe at the end of each day, doing a bit of a detox where you get a piece of paper out and you go, well, what what was I fearful about? Get in touch with your emotions. What was I feeling? Where did I get fearful, stressed? And what did I do as a result of that? Was there any praying to God? Was there any taking it to God? Was there any reminding yourself of Scripture um, and his promises? Figure out, are you actually engaged in some parts of your life in a bit of mechanistic, magical formula control where I felt this way, I felt unsafe, and I went and did this because I think this will pop out with security? Test ourselves. Use the book of Psalms. It's a great book that shows us where we ultimately put our refuge in a scary powerful world let me pray for us to that end heavenly father thank you for jesus breaking the power of satan so that we no longer fear help us to remember that to work out daily all these little forgetful things that we do where we kind of engage in controlling our own destiny help us to come back help us to remember that you have sovereign power. So we ask that you will clear the way for SRE um, and we ask that knowing that whatever is the solution you come up with, uh, it will not stop the gospel going out and even to kids. But we do bring this before you and ask that you will um, do something amazing that we can come back even next week and be encouraged that you have exerted your mighty power Uh, We also pray for Scott Morrison. We pray that you will help him uh, as he is Prime Minister. And whatever happens, Lord, we just pray that uh, we will be bold and you will give us boldness to continue speaking the word of God no matter what legal requirements come, what the culture is, or what dark arts and spiritual forces are out there. We pray this in your name. Amen.